So what gives me the credentials to be talking to you about financial planning? Well, I have a family. I guess that doesn't cut it. Um, I actually have completed the coursework to be a certified financial planner in addition to being a physician. Um, and I'm going to give you some examples of actually how I've real-time helped people with financial planning. But more, in the, more than that, you know, we've studied the scriptural basis for a financial plan and what that means. And you're going to see a lot of biblical references when we talk about what's going on. What else do I do? Well, I'm a diagnostic radiologist. I actually have the imaging contract for two hospitals, one of which I don't actually work at anymore in Ukiah. I have privileges, but I, I had the chance to hire somebody right at a UCSF fellowship. You know, you don't get very many of those. I hired myself out of a job there. Um, I still manage the contract up in Tillamook, and I manage the contracts, hire the radiologist, you know, keep it rolling. And so I have a revenue stream, um, kind of a built-in revenue stream that provides me an income. It allows me the freedom to do some other things. And because of that, I do some other things. Um, I'm president of Life and Health Network. You may have heard a bit about that. The great thing to be president of a media company is you can give them a handout, an outline, and tell them to give you, make you a keynote presentation. So they did that. And so the, if this looks good, it's not my fault. Well, it is kind of my fault, but I didn't do any of it. I just had the team do it. So uh, I'm president of Life and Health Network, but more importantly, I guess for the last year and a half, I've been chief operating officer at Weimar Institute. And we've had some amazing changes that have occurred in God's just blessing that institute. Just in the last month, and Dr. Nedley alluded to it a little bit last night, in the last month, we had a $3.2 million debt to Amazing Facts when those two ministries separated. That was three years ago. That debt was starting to accrue interest on the 7th of August. On the 7th of August, we bought the debt down from $3.2 million down to $1 million. We delivered a check to Mike Rich, who was, it was during ASI, we delivered a check to them for a million dollars. You know, I, I wish I was there, except on August 7th, I was down in Costa Mesa meeting with the Educational Licensing Committee of the Board of Registered Nursing for the State of California to get nursing credentialing which we actually did. We got full approval to start a nursing school. And uh, Dr. Anderson is back in the back of the room there, and she is instrumental in actually for, in, for years of making this happen, instrumental in actually making this happen. And thank you, Shirley, for being here. And Melanie's here, too. The two of them are the reason we got nursing accreditation here on campus, and thank you guys for coming. But in addition to that, um, just about three weeks ago, we were on a conference call with um, WASC, which is the Western Association of Secondary Colleges. We've been applying to get accreditation for our college so that credits are transferred. We actually can graduate people from Weimar, and we do, and they go to Loma Linda, to the medical school and dental school. They don't, they can't actually get into the health school for some reason. We've written a letter to Dick Hart saying, how come, you know, the medical school accept our transfer credits, but the health school health doesn't. Um, but if we had WASC approval, that transfer of credit isn't even an issue. So we were on a conference call with them, <clears throat> and there were about seven or eight of us answering questions because they have two readers that are assigned by WASC that are senior professors, pre presidents of colleges, and they look through your entire application, 657 pages worth, and try to determine if you're eligible for status. They just don't want diploma mills. And so we had three options. They denied us two years ago, completely denied us. The option was they could deny us again, but we felt we had a much better application. They could actually condition us, and that's what we were sure we were going to get. We were going to get conditioned, and they were going to tell us to buff up our finances or buff up our credit, 
you know, our, our curriculum, or they're going to do something. Or they could give us full approval, and we felt it was going to be a miracle if they gave us full approval, and it was going to take a miracle to have, have us denied again. We just didn't feel that was going to happen. So in the prayer session before this, actually, people remind me that I had this prayer. I said, Lord, I want you to either completely deny us, just slam that door shut, or give us complete approval. I don't want any of this stuff in between. Give us a clear answer. Now, that is a, is, that's a legitimate prayer. Give us a clear answer. Slam that door shut. We'll just stop spending money and stop doing it. Or give us approval. We met with them. And I asked Dr. Nedley as we're leaving, I said, so, you know, what do you think the odds are? And he goes, 50-50 chance they're going to deny us again. Because there were some people on the WASC board who specifically are not WEMAR friendly. So we felt we were going to get denied again. And they said, well, it's, we're busy for the next two or three days, but give us about three or four days, and we'll be able to give you an answer. So that's, you know, that's OK. You know, they'll give us an answer. What, what are we going to be? A half hour later, Dr. Siebold called me, and he said, uh, Chris Oberg, who was the WASC consultant assigned to us, he said, Chris called me and said that they don't need three days. You guys have complete approval. So we have approval for eligibility. We're further along the eligibility status to our knowledge, than any other self-supporting um, educational institution since Madison College. And, and if you remember the Madison history, part of the reason why they folded was because they chose not to get accredited for their, especially their nursing program. They had like, I don't know, where did, uh, there are people in this room that know this history better than I, but there were a couple hundred nurses, and the next day they were just not in school anymore. But anyway, that's a bit of my history. I'm, I, even though I'm a physician, physicians traditionally have really bad financial planning. I mean, that's just a truism. They don't know how to run a business. They think they do. We think we know everything because we passed all the classes and we were the top. We were A type, type A, and we just thought we can just do anything. That's why physician, Adventist physician pilots have terrible records. My wife has a girlfriend, and she has a, they have another mutual friend, and their dad was a pilot. And he finally stopped flying. There were six guys in this group of Adventist physicians who were pilots. He was the last one alive. And they didn't die of coronary heart disease. They died of plane crashes. Physicians assume that they know everything. And the thing is, we have great capacity to learn sometimes, but sometimes we don't have the knowledge base. And because we have a revenue stream, we just start spending money indiscriminately, and I'm going to try to give you some ideas and principles, biblical principles, how we can organize our financial planning so that it's according to God's glory and that we have revenue to give back. Neither Neil nor myself take any salary from Weimar Institute because as we tell them, if you just gave us the money, we would just have to give it back to you. I mean, God blesses us with a revenue stream so that we can actually do this, and I think that's what God wants us to be, to be financially secure so that you can provide service which is not taxing to the ministry. So I'm going to tell you a story about an ER physician. This is a real story, a real friend who had this debt. Now, this was about five years ago. So some of these interest rates that you'll see are not market rates currently. But he had a medical student loan currently at $93,000 at 10% accruing interest. He had a home mortgage at 7%, and the home was currently, um, the mortgage was at $425,000. They had consumer credit of almost $50,000 at, at a combined global 8.5% interest. They had a car loan at 8%, $27,000. Then an airplane loan of 6.5%, $35,000. Now, this guy was not an Adventist physician, so it's amazing. 
his rate of death is not as bad, even though he's a physician and a pilot. It's not as bad as if he were a physician, a pilot, and an Adventist. <laughs> True story. And he has two daughters just entering university. Okay? Here are his assets. So they have savings at 3.5%, making 40, they have $4,500. They have $125,000 equity in the house. They have $30,000 equity in the plane and a 401k of $38,000. That was what they were at five to six years ago when we did this initial plan. Now, I have an interesting question for you. Without remembering, but just going back, realizing they have about $630,000 in debt, and they have this amount of asset. Okay? What was their biggest debt? Does anyone remember? Well, okay, what was the highest interest rate debt? This is quiz. Student loan, very good, at 10%. So they described to me as equity. They have $30,000 in equity. They have a $35,000 residual loan on the plane, and the planes were $65,000 if they had to sell it. So they have $30,000 of what they're calling equity. Okay, you're following me? Now this is what's really interesting. If I sell this airplane, and I get $65,000, and I pay off the $35,000 note, and I have $30,000 in cash, what am I going to do with the $30,000? I'm going to spend it, yeah. It's probably, yeah. No, I'm the financial advisor, so I'm going to say you're going to pay off your highest interest rate loan. Now, most financial advisors, if we're working with you, we will tell you to pay off the smallest loan because that will give you the incentive to see that things are completely done and then you can work on the bigger ones. We would tell you to start off, don't worry about the interest rate, start on the smallest one, get it completely paid off and feel good about yourself, okay? But you have $30,000 and you want to do what's very best in the long term, so you would pay down the 10% student loan. That's what you do, because that's the highest interest rate. So, would you describe this as equity? No, you would describe it as a 10% loan. You understand the reasoning? Because you saved the 10%. So that wasn't equity at all. That was a 10% loan. When you describe it in those terms, you can finally describe to him why he needs to sell his house, why he needs to sell his plane. Because that's exactly what I told him to do. Because he doesn't have any equity. He felt good about himself. I have all this equity. No, you don't have any equity. You're in debt. He was early 40s. So this family is very motivated to get out of the debt. So what they should do? I've already told you some of it. This is what they did do. Let me tell you what they did. This is what they look like today. They're completely out of debt. They have a house that currently is worth $185,000, and it's completely paid off. That obviously means that they had to sell their expensive house, which they did. They sold the airplane, which they didn't want to do. They paid off all their car loans. They paid off all their student debt for the two girls that were going to university. They paid off all their consumer debt, and they only have one credit card now, and they only use it for emergencies. Cash? Cash is really hard to use. You know, I was, we were at uh, Jamba Juice or something. We were getting some smoothies for the kids after violin lessons. And I gave them a $100 bill, and they wouldn't take it. They go, there's a big sign there, nothing over a 20. I couldn't use cash. I had to use a credit card. I really? I, this, I said, look, this is US legal tender. No, our employees tell us, our employers can't tell us they can't take $100 bills because there's too much risk. 
They'd much rather use plastic. And then I told my wife about that. I was complaining. She goes, oh, she goes, those signs are all over the place. You know, I just don't do much shopping. There's one other thing. He sold his airplane. Now, he really wants an airplane. What I didn't tell you and what he's done, he has $167,000. I just talked to him two weeks ago. Has $167,000 into an account for which he's going to completely pay for and buy a plane. He's going to be completely paid for. He's not going to borrow. He's going to wait until he has the money, and then he's just going to buy the plane. Now, these aren't Christians. They're very nice people. They're not Christians. They're not really set up to give back like you would do. But every time I see this guy, and I see him relatively frequently up in Oregon, I mean, he comes up and gives me a hug. And he's just so happy. He goes, our life is so, so great. We have, we have no burdens and concerns when it comes to finance because we just don't have any, we're just so happy. Our property taxes are less. You know, our whole life is better. He goes, I can cut back. I can work fewer hours. I'm not, I don't have to work because, because we don't have any, we're not servicing any debt. So what's a Christian's financial responsibility? Is it different from the rest of the world? And I would maintain it is. There are eight principles that we're going to walk through. See, this is cool. I mean, I didn't do any of this, but the team just kind of put this together. It's just kind of cool. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be loyal to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. This is, listen to this. Two-thirds of Jesus' parables deal with money and material possessions or our attitude toward them. There are well over 2,000, oops, um, the only problem with this, there are, I'll just tell you what that slide said because this thing has a little hard time going backward. There are over 2,000 references to money or possessions in the Bible. There are less than 500 that deal with faith. The first principle, everything belongs to God. This is, this is very critically crucial important. Everything belongs to God. If you're worrying about your money, God says, I can take that away from you. Because if you want to say this is God, you can stop worrying about it. Not your problem. Not only that, but when it belongs to God, you tend to treat it a little bit differently. The earth is the Lord's and all its fullness, the world and all those that dwell therein. He owns everything. The money's already his. Look at this. When God owns everything, it changes the paradigm. Our priorities are different and our worries are reduced. We may choose to use our time differently. We would probably give God more time. We may change how we think and how we act. That's what cognitive behavior therapy is. Cognitive behavior therapy looks at the distorted thinking. The distorted thinking is that I own the money. If I can correct that distortion, that cognitive distortion, and I can show you that it really belongs to God, cognitive behavior therapy says that if I can change your cognitive distortion, what can I do? I can change how you act. I can actually change your behavior because I've corrected your cognitive distortion. If we own the money, eventually that money will own us. Our checkbook, our credit card, our bank statements are a constant daily telling story of how we make God the priority of our lives. If I want to know from you 
how much God is a priority and missions are a priority and ministry is a priority, I just have to pull out your last credit card statement in your checkbook. Right? Wouldn't you agree? That should tell a story. And if you want to know how that story plays out, go ahead and do it for yourself. This changes from giving until it hurts until <laughs> it's a pleasure to give. So the second principle is that the value of money is relative. And I'll explain what I mean. Consider the value of Judas as 30 pieces of silver. He ultimately did not want it, and even the priests did not want it, if you remember. It was filthy money. What's the value of the widow's mites? The value is hugely less than the 30 pieces of silver. But the value of those two mites was elevated by Jesus to what? To infinite worth. So obviously, that value of money was relative. It's all relative. It's not absolute. We like to put an absolute value on money, and Jesus says, no, it's relative. Her mites were worth a whole lot more than the 30 pieces of silver, as you can see. Do you want the world's 30 pieces of silver with possessions, cars, boats, airplanes? You can go on and on. And whatever money can buy, or do you want to invest for eternity? I had a good friend, some of you may know, so I won't tell too much of the story, um, a dentist. Um, he passed away about a month ago, stage four colon cancer, 42 years of age. Six-year-old daughter, 10-year-old daughter, and a 17-year-old daughter. Um, had all, all the toys. I mean, he had all these things. He had a Z06 Corvette that he bought on his 40th birthday, his own birthday present. I think it was probably $140,000. Um, a, has a really nice ski boat, high-end motorhome, beautiful home. I mean, all the toys, you know, ATVs, UTVs, motorcycles, you know, trailers to haul them, vehicles to haul them around, everything. Um, but it turns out that now in the liquidation process, he had not prepared his family very well for his death because of his financial planning, or lack of, um, he le he's leaving his family in a relatively precarious position. Um, you know, if you looked at him, if the world looked at him, they go, man, this guy is a millionaire. He's like, you know, and he, he could have had those kind of assets because he had that kind of revenue stream, and he had all the accoutrements, but, you know, he, when the revenue stream stopped, and it can, um, you know, he, the last thing he wanted was to have his family suffering. Now, they're not going to be profoundly suffering, but they're not positioned in any way as if he would have had a, a really reasonable financial plan. So the third principle is that prosperity is having what you need when you need it. But my God shall supply all your need according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. Do we worry about where our needs are coming from? But the Bible says that we need to stop worrying. He's, you give it to him. Philippians 4 verse 19 says, but my God shall supply all your needs. Weimar Institute, we had a, had a debt of $3.2 million to Amazing Facts. And when, we, when I first started in the first board meeting I went to, they, everybody was perseverating about this debt. It's like, it, was, it, was like, it was like looming, like it was going to be crushing, it was going to destroy the campus. And I said, you know, this is God's ministry, and if we're not doing the right thing, he'll shut us down any way he can. But, you know, if we really believe we're doing what God, let's give this to God. This is, this is his problem. Let him solve it. 
you know, let's not worry about it. We, you know, let's not try to get in and try to raise $3 million. Let's ask God if he'll help us solve that. We had a person who went through New Start about four years ago, five years ago, um, a non-Adventist guy who lived in Reno, Nevada. He passed away in December of 2013 and left us one quarter of his estate. His estate was appraised at $8.1 million. That went a long ways to take care of that debt. I mean, that's, that was really the big push in getting this solved. God never, however, gives you more than you need. He gave us as much as we needed. It doesn't say God will supply you warehouses full of extra supplies. He says he will provide all your needs. And oftentimes, at the very last minute, when you just, you know, you, you know, it's like, that's when I need it, and then it shows up. It's kind of humorous. I think God has a pretty good sense of humor. Teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I've commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. He's with us. If we believe that, if we have faith in that, and we have faith that he's going to provide us our needs, we need to put our faith there and stop worrying about those issues. That doesn't mean you need to be, you know, completely ignorant about these things. He expects us to use our mental capacity and learn what we can, but we need to stop worrying when we, when we shouldn't be worrying about those issues. That will keep him in perfect peace. People who are worrying about money, and I've seen a lot of them, people who are worrying about money, they do not have peace. They are not in perfect peace, I can tell you. It isn't, it isn't happening. Those, thou wilt keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on thee because he trusteth in thee. When we trust in him, we can have peace. If you don't have peace in your life, especially when you're concerned about financial issues, we need to transfer that worry and allow God to take over that problem and allow him to give us peace. He will give us peace and then if necessary, miraculously solve our problems and increase our faith. Okay, this is the big one. <laughs> Debt is bad. Let's all say that, huh? Debt is bad. Come on. Debt is bad. Debt, it's worse than bad, isn't it? Debt is death in many situations. What does the Bible say about debt? The rich ruleth over the poor, and the borrower is servant to the lender. Duh. Yeah, yeah. Do we see that? You know, when you're borrowing money, it's like, you know, I, I, I've always heard this mantra, do you want to work for money, or do you want your money to work for you? Now, if the money's working for you, are you a borrower? No, it turns out you can't borrow. You're a lender, or you have a business. The people who are really, you know, the people who really become wealthy, they're not getting wealthy by punching in a time clock. That doesn't work. They're working for the hour and they're working for money. The people who get wealthy have ideas and they use some of their money and they have their money work for them and then they grow a business and they become financially secure. That doesn't mean that you shouldn't clock in and have that kind of job, but for real financial security, there are times when you need to venture out into some entrepreneurial venture just to test the waters and to learn something. Owe no man anything but to love one another, for he that loveth another hath fulfilled the law. Owe no man anything. It's pretty plain. The wicked borroweth and payeth not again, but the righteous showeth mercy and giveth. How can you give if you don't have? 
how can you donate to ministry if you're not financially secure? I know people who have made pledges, and I know their financial situation, and their financial situation is abysmal. They have consumer credit and all kinds of credit. And I go, God doesn't intend for you to give that money until you get your financial house in order. It's, it's almost sinful. They're almost doing it because out of a sense of guilt, and God doesn't need that money. He needs you to be financially secure, to get out of debt, to have to be a ministry and a mentor to your community so that people can look at Christians as being solid financial pillars in the community and then giving back to the community. If Christians would follow this simple principle, it would do more than anything else to bring peace to our family and prosperity to what? To the cause of God. We should not be giving large sums of money if we haven't gotten our financial house in order. I mean, that's, that's not what the Bible says. The Bible says we need to be working, looking at ourselves internally and get rid of that debt. That doesn't mean to assume that, well, I'll just, you know, I'll just not give anything to the church and I'll keep spending a lot of money and I'll stay in debt and, and God says he doesn't want me to give anything and so then I can save my tithe and 10% and everything else. It's not what I'm saying. Tithe is a requirement. That's God's. We just have to give it back to him. No questions asked. But these offerings that extend to 20 to 30 to 40% of your gross income, that's what I'm talking about. In that area, that should only be done when everything is paid off. And I'm even talking about, you know, four or five years ago, well, before the big crunch, say seven years ago, no one would tell you that you should pay off your house. Because they were saying, look, look, in fact, you should borrow as much as you can. You should get the biggest house you can because it's going to be your biggest single investment, and it's going to grow faster than anything else. And when you sell it, you're going to make millions of dollars. And that's what financial planners are doing. And back then, I was saying, no, it's a debt. And I don't care that you can write off the interest. You need to pay off your house. Now, those people come back and say, how did you know? You, it turns out you were right. Well, I'm right because that's what the Bible says, not because a financial planner says. Of usury. Now, if, if you're, oh, you mean renting the house? Um, you're not borrowing money, and you're, it, it's like, what if you lease a car instead of buy a car? We could talk about that discussion. You're, you're, you're renting the car. That's what a lease is. You're just, you're just leasing the money. It's just a different way of getting a loan. Um, there are certain situations where renting is the smarter move in some, some, Communities, if you look, if you're only going to be there for 13 months and, and you know, houses are flat or going down, you know, it would be a financial suicide to buy a house. You would rent. So it really depends on how long you're staying there, what your plans on, what your ministry is, and it, it depends on a whole bunch of things. It's more complicated. And so renting a house often in some situations, when I, when I tell people when they move, say they move out of state and go to a different state, I tell them, you need to rent for six months. Because you don't know for sure where you're going to stay, what kind of house you want, where it's going to be. You don't know where the microclimes are in the community. So you need to just rent for six months until you settle down. I, I see people, you know, he'll fly ahead and he'll buy a house and she hasn't even seen it. And then, you know, nine months later they go, we want to sell the house because that's not where we want to live. And, and they lose money. So God and his wisdom and counsel must have first place in your life. Principle number five. God and his wisdom and counsel must have first place in your life. 
Trust in the Lord with all thine heart and lean not unto the own understanding. Physicians are famous for this. That must be my phone. Man. Physicians are famous for leaning onto their own understanding because we've done so well in school. Dennis, the same thing. I mean, you do, you're at the head, you know, head of your profession. You've never had any trouble, and you just everybody tells you you're so smart and bright. We just think we can do everything. But it says here we shouldn't be trusting unto our own understanding. We should lean on God. In all thy ways acknowledge him, and he shall direct thy paths. Be not wise in thine eyes. Fear the Lord and depart from evil. It shall be health to thy navel and marrow to thy bones. Honor the Lord with thy substance and with the first fruits of all thy increase. But seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto us. So we should be seeking God, his wisdom, and his honor before I keep standing in front of you. I'm sorry. So that should be where we start. Because if we, just, if we go to a, a certified financial planner, which in many cases is kind of a good thing to do, but if they are not Christians, if they don't believe in the same philosophy we have, what they're going to tell you is, is some of it's correct, but some of it's corrupt. This goes beyond what would Jesus do. Instead, what is the biblical and spirit of prophecy counsel in this area of my life? That answer, if you have a biblical worldview, and we do, that's, you know, we're, we're among brothers and sisters here. We have a biblical worldview, and we believe that the Bible and the spirit of prophecy can answer those questions for us. If we don't get the answer, if we don't have the answer, if we haven't gotten to the answer, it's probably because we haven't studied enough. It's not because the answer's not there. It's because we haven't dug deep enough. And in the digging, we develop that relationship with God, and we, we develop a peace, and sometimes we don't stumble onto the answer we wanted, but we get the answer. So your purpose in life is to glorify God. It's a biblical principle. It's a financial principle. Let your light show sign before men that you may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. Um, this physician who came to me, um, I don't know that I'd really told anybody that I was interested in doing financial planning, um, but he just, he came to me and he goes, he goes, um, you seem to have, you know, you have no financial problems it seems like, you know, you can, you drive a pretty modest car, and I kind of know, you know, the kind of income level you're at as a radiologist. You know, they kind of get an idea of a ballpark. And so he goes, you know, you know, what do you do? I mean, is your house paid for? And I go, yeah, the house is paid for. Your car, yeah, car is paid for. Do you have any debt? No, don't have any debt. Well, how do you do that? Well, you don't do it overnight. But you start out with a, a you got to start somewhere. And he goes, well, could you help me? And I said, well, at the time, I was taking this certified financial planning course, and one of the requirements was that I have people that I actually did sample financial planning with. And I said, this is perfect, because you know, I can't charge you. I wouldn't charge you anyway. But I need you to do this to help me for my classwork. And so we went through this, and the end result was that. And in the same time, I told him about charitable giving. I mean, he's not a Christian, but I said, you need to give back to the community. And he actually, there was a fund drive there for the YMCA to expand, 
and he, he gave a fairly large donation to the YMCA because it was just like, you need to give back. That's part of what you do for your community, and that's part of financial planning. Whether therefore you eat or drink or whatsoever you do, do all to the glory of God. Everything we're doing, the, the, the cars we drive tell a story, and it's kind of sad. You know, I was, I was driving with, uh, with Neil back from the airport, and we actually drove past a Tesla dealership. And actually, in a survey of young people in college, they were saying, if, if, you, if money was no issue, what car would you drive? The number one car in that list was actually Tesla. It wasn't Ferrari or Lamborghini, or Porsche, it was Tesla. And we had been kind of talking about the benefit, putting up some solar panels, and then just charging the Tesla, and you know, you can get them for 80,000, that's about where they start, anywhere from 80 to 140,000. And we would both kind of talked about getting a Tesla, and then he goes, but you know what? The perception, the perception of driving that thing, even if it seemed to be a good financial thing, and gets good economy, and I can charge it using the sun, and all those kind of benefits, the perception, like especially on Weimar campus, would be like, that's probably not a good thing to do. So we actually have a witness in, in everything we do. Whatever we do, drink, eat, whatever we do, we need to do all to the glory of God. Now, if really you could convince me that I could drive a Tesla for five years and I could charge it off my solar panels, and at the end of five years I could sell it for what I paid for it, I don't care what they think, I'm buying it. So there you go. There are always some exceptions. <laughs> the world seeks prosperity. Listen to this. this is, the world seeks prosperity to bring themselves glory. Wouldn't you agree? That's why they want prosperity. The Christian seeks to bring glory to God. And that is in prosperity and adversity. It is appropriate for the Christian to prosper. Prospering is not bad. I mean, look at Abraham. Abraham was so wealthy, they called him a prince. I mean, he had all kinds of possessions. God knew he could trust him with those possessions. God isn't against having you prosperity. But look at this. It's appropriate for the Christian to prosper in order to provide for personal needs, but also the needs of others and to help advance the cause of God. That's the purpose of prosperity. Once your needs are met, that doesn't mean it's toy time. You know, okay, let's go buy a new boat, or let's buy another boat, or let's buy a bigger motorhome. No, that your needs are met. It's now time to provide the needs of others, maybe help pay for tuition for someone to go to school, someone who really needs it. You know, to provide for others, and then to also help advance the cause of God. And if any of you are in here, most of the people who might come to this might want to know how to do more financial planning, but if any of you are financially secure and you have some of this extra money, we, you can talk to me. I, I know several good causes where we could put your money to good work. Principle seven, the tithe is the minimum testimony of our Christian commitment. And blessed be the Most High God. We're going to finish here pretty quick because I want to leave some time for questions. And blessed be the Most High God which hath delivered thine enemies into thy hand and he gave him tithes of all. So tithing occurred clear back, way back in Genesis. And Jacob, uh, I'm going to, okay, I can't go back. <laughs> 
And Jacob vowed a vow saying, if God will be with me and will keep me in this way that I go and will give me bread to eat and raiment to put on, so that I come again to my father's house in peace, then shall the Lord be my God. And this stone which I have set for a pillar shall be God's house, and of all that thou shalt give me, I will surely give a tenth unto thee. For I am the Lord, I change not, therefore ye sons of Jacob are not consumed. And this is the famous text from Malachi 3. Even from the days of your fathers, you have gone away from mine ordinances, and have not kept them. Return unto me, and I will return unto you, saith the Lord of hosts. But ye said, Wherein shall we return? Will a man rob God? Yet ye have robbed me. But you say, Wherein have we robbed thee in tithes and offerings? Ye are cursed with a curse, for you have robbed me, even this whole nation. What happens when you don't return your tithes? First with a curse. Bring all the tithes in the storehouse, that there may be meat in mine house, and prove me now herewith, saith the Lord of hosts, if I will not open you the windows of heaven, pour you out a blessing, and there shall not be room enough to receive it. A lot of people go there. I'm going to pay my tithe, and I'm going to sit around, ka-ching, you know, wait for this big, you know, God's going to, the blessings, again, money is relative to God. Blessing is relative to God. What is God's great goal in life? Not to make us prosperous, his goal is that not any should be lost, but that all should come to repentance. His goal is to get us to heaven. And if that goal is that we're best served in adversity, that's where we want to pray that he keeps us. Because his goal, I mean, our 70 years on this earth, our little chronology, you guys are mathematicians. What's infinity plus the 70? What is it? It's still the same. It's, what happened to the 70? It's not there. In the mathematical equation, the 70 doesn't exist. It's like these 70 years don't even matter mathematically in relation to infinity. He wants us for infinity. He doesn't care about the 70 years. He does. He loves us. But he wants us saved. And he will save us in whatever means he can use and need to. And if that's in adversity, we need to pray and accept that God will do that for us. And I will rebuke the devourer for your sakes. He shall not destroy the fruits of your ground, neither shall your vine. I'm going to have to go back again. I keep pushing the wrong button. I get too excited. Neither shall your vine cast her fruit before time in the field, saith the Lord of hosts. So the last principle that we're going to cover, and then we'll have some time for questions. Everyone must give an account to God of his money management. Have you ever thought of that? You thought you were just judged on your deeds. Well, that, those are deeds. Oftentimes, you know, they say, you know, you want to know what happened? Follow the money. You've heard that term, follow the money. You want to know where people's heart is? Find out where they're spending their money. Where you find out where they're spending their money is where their heart is, and that's their deeds. After a long time, the Lord of those servants cometh and reckoned with them. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that every one may receive the things done in his body according to that he hath done, whether it be good or bad. And behold, I come quickly, and my reward is with me to give every man according as he shall, his work shall be. There is nothing 
more certain in Scripture than the fact that we must all face judgment? Will your financial planning, your financial management hold up to that scrutiny? His Lord said unto him, Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Thou hast been faithful over a few things. I will make thee ruler over many things, even thou into the joy of the Lord. Enter now into the joy of the Lord. So that's kind of, in a, in a nutshell, the biblical foundation for financial management and how we need to deal with it. What are the most important things? The important things are everything belongs to God. Debt is really bad. And we're going to all be judged on how we handle our, our money and our financial planning. In addition, we set the scenario for how our community, how our church, and how our family manages money. And so what you do has an impact for many generations sometimes. So questions. George, I know you had a question. Finished. Finished. Yes. Okay, I'm going to repeat your question because we're on audioverse so they can hear. My question is, is what about those people who, you know, they may make a reasonable income, but they're actually giving, they, they may have everything paid off, but they're just kind of giving everything to the Lord's work, and they're really living in, in relative adversity. Um, there are some people that are called to a, a, a martyr's life. I don't think very many are. And some people might even consider that somewhat martyrdom. I don't think that the Bible, um, you know, the Bible, I, I can't find anything in the Bible where it says that we should have that. God wants us to prosper. He wants us to be comfortable, and, but he wants us to save. He wants to save us. That's his big goal is to save us. In, in some people's situation, that's where God is keeping them because that's what's going to save them. But I don't think that's the general rule. I think in general that isn't, Biblical. Can someone prove me wrong? You want to prove me wrong. <laughs> well, clearly when they started the work, they were they were they were dirt poor. I mean they were worse than dirt poor. Later in their life, they were actually you know, reasonably comfortable. I mean, you don't have to go to Elmshaven and realize that that isn't a pretty nice place to hang out. Um, you know, I mean, I don't. I think God had a plan. In fact, I remember I was telling someone she, we were talking about you know preservation. She was telling you know we shouldn't have lots of food put up because it would just get worm eaten. And, and she, one year she put up 267 quarts of peaches, and they had pears and plums and apricots, and they had. They had like a hundred, I mean a thousand, fifteen hundred quarts of canned fruits. Well, she had a staff of 15, 18 people that ate at the table all the time and friends and neighbors and stuff. But God provided this big place because she had a ministry, but Ellen White wasn't always as dirt poor as what we would read about in early writing and you know in the early books, because God did prosper her in the later years and she was really comfortable. She gave sacrificially, as we know. But you know, she was you know not she was she was not bereft of, of resources. Yes. The, the question is about nonprofits and how you select. You can actually go online and find out. You know, if you're just looking at a general 501c3, you know, you can go online and find out actually how much of the resource goes to the to the end product. And you'd be stunned if you do that. Sometimes it's 20% of what you gave. 
You know, they may have a 50% marketing budget. It took them 50% to actually get you to give them money. Um, I would never give to a 501c3 that. I'm, my goal is that I want at least 90% to go to the intended purpose. And if you can get to 95, 96%, and there's some nonprofits that do that. In fact, there's some nonprofits that have volunteers doing the fundraising. Um, those are even better. So, I mean, the, the other choice, I mean, you want the tax deduction. I mean, the, the first choice would be to actually do all of the due diligence and go find the orphanage or whatever and actually give them the money. The problem with this, if it's out of the country, you can't deduct it from your income tax. So, you know, we just, we want to look. You can go online, you can pull their 990, which is the form that a 501c3 has to file with the IRS. You can look at their 990 and you can see who the donors are. You can see what their expenses are. You can see their tax return because it's required that they have to file it and they have to make it available. So if you want to go to all that much work, which is good to do, especially if you're considering a major donation, um, I think it's very valuable because those are God's, God, it's God's money. And we have a fiduciary responsibility to make sure that it's handled correctly. We don't want it to give it to a nonprofit that half of their money goes in salary. Yes. You're getting tired of equities. You say. <laughs> the question, and I'll just repeat it, was you, you've repeatedly lost 30 to 40% whenever there's been a, a crash. And our, and our plan for that is that he's like, you're doing the right thing. Well, of course, because he makes money by, by telling you that, because every time he does an exchange, he gets a percentage in commission. So what we said was just started working on it. Yeah, Very good. So that, you shouldn't have been investing if you had all this debt, if you look at this. Oh, but of course, you know, because he's not going to make any money by telling you to buy down your debt because he doesn't get a commission off of that. He does get a commission if you agree to do buy equities with him, and he gets a commission off of those shares. So the question then is, should you invest at all? Should you invest at all? You shouldn't invest at all until you get your debt paid off. Now, the exception of that is if you, especially if you're an employee and your employer is matching you know, your retirement. That's money on the table. Don't leave any money on the table. If you put in 2% and they'll match 4%, I think Adventist Health does a plan, something like that. If you're not putting in 2%, you're just stupid. I don't know how else to say it, because you're leaving 4% on the table. And you need to put in that 2%, and you need to invest it, even if you have debt, even if it's a 50-50 you know, match. You, there's no reason to leave the money on the table. Put in as max out, put as much as they'll let you, and let them match the 50%, take their money. After that, if you're investing because you're worried about retirement and you have all this massive debt, wrong answer. And it's not biblical. Biblical says debt is bad. Get rid of the debt. There are certified financial planners that now work by the hour and make no commission. Those are people you should seek out because they don't have a vested interest in making, in, in, they don't have any gain, you know, any skin in the game. They're just working by the hour and they're giving you best case scenario advice and just say, you can, you can do what you want. This is what I recommend, but I don't make anything off of that. Those are the people you want to find. Question? Yes. Is there ever, the question was, is there any ever a place for debt? Um, clearly, um, most of us wouldn't have gone through Loma Linda if there was no place for debt. Would you agree? I mean, Ellen White said, you need, we need to assume some debt there. God has shown us we need to purchase this, and we need to assume some debt. There are clearly times and places for debt. But that's corporate debt. Is there any time for personal debt? And the answer is probably occasionally, but debt should be shunned. There are always certain situations, 
crises, medical crises, and that, that's becoming less of a problem now because everybody's supposed to have insurance. Um, but you know, you have co-pays and other things. I mean, there are some issues where you not only have a medical crisis, but the breadwinner stops earning money and doesn't have disability insurance. And so you have this income drop, and you may have, you, you just, it's, you know, you go into adversity. Should you assume debt then? Um, I'm, sh I'm not even sure that that's the appropriate time to assume debt because we need a network of family and friends, and sometimes that's, they, they just need to know that, see, it's a blessing to them to help you out. But if we don't let them help, we've, we've taken the blessing away from them. If, you, if, you, if your husband's lost your job and you had a medical crisis and you've lost your house, it went back to the bank and, and you're bereft, it can be a true blessing to the family that takes that family in as compared to assuming debt and, and digging a bigger hole. I mean, they're case by case. There are always some situations where debt is, is okay, but debt should generally be completely shunned. Um, I tell people, you know, it depends, it depends on their financial situation. It depends on how fast they want to accelerate the buy-down. Um, if they want to get, um, you know, a five-year, get a 30-year amortization, get a five-year balloon and have it paid off in five years, and they have a plan and they can show me that plan, that'll work. I don't want a 30-year amortization, take 30 years and get a second mortgage at year four. No, that's not right. But if, if you show me a reasonable plan that shows you're going to have that debt paid off in a reasonable time, then that's a, a reasonable maneuver. But to do that, people will buy a, a less expensive house because they go, well, I can't pay a, a half a million dollar house off in five years. Of course you can't. That's why you shouldn't buy it. You know, buy a modest home that you can get that paid off in a reasonable period of time and I'll buy into that. And then stay with the program and get it paid off. When you get it paid off, I tell you what, it's the greatest day in your life. But the old mantra was buy as big a house as you can because that house is going up so fast that why, let's just cash in on this big stupidity of this, this housing bubble. Well, the housing bubble burst. I sold my house about a year before that happened. I didn't see it coming, but I had, I guess this can't go forever. And we actually rented for two years because I didn't know where I was going. Um, but we, we had an opportunity to sell our house to a, an orthopedic surgeon who wanted to buy it. So we let him have it. And, and we rented for two years because we didn't know where we wanted to be. But I knew at that point in time, I didn't want to buy a house because I, the market wasn't right. When God was calling us over to Weimar, we looked along the 80 corridor, which is where Weimar was. There were no houses. And I'll just tell you this really story fast because it's a pretty cool story. The inventory was really cheap over on Highway 50 that goes up to Tahoe, and we found a house over there that was just stunning. They had 2.4 million into it, and it was listed at a million, and I ended up buying it for 910,000 cash. We had it appraised three times by the insurance company because it had a replacement cost rider on it, and they finally said, we have to insure this house for 2.4 million because that's what it would cost to replace it. So I had to pay insurance on a $2.4 million house that I only paid $910,000. We lived in it for 13 months. We put in the landscape, a little bit of stuff, maybe put in $50,000 and sold it for $1.35 in 13 months. In this economy, sold it 13 months ago. So, you know, there, God was calling us there. You know, that seems like an expensive home, but we made 48% profit in 13 months in this economy. Yes. 
So the question, as I hear you, if, if the earning spouse, and it can be husband or wife, if the earning spouse, the high wage earning spouse um, kind of collapses or can't make the earning, that you could still pay for the house. If your house is paid for, that's not a problem. That's the beauty of having your house paid for. That's the beauty of having no consumer credit, having no car loan, to have no debt. And to have you know, three, or three to six months of, you, know, you were asking the question, should you give everything? We recommend at least three to six months of living expenses that are in a liquid account, not to be given away. Because in that very situation, it happens. Everything's paid for. You still have three to six months of comfortable living without having to do, worry about anything. I think we're, we're not, we have like five more minutes. Any other questions? Yes. Oh, I get the, no, I didn't put the solar panels on the roof. I put the solar panels at the house. I, I take care of the house, but I just plug the thing in at night. The, anyway. Well, the glory to God, the really good question, there is the time value of the money. So whatever the money could earn if you had it invested in something. Good point. Now, if you don't need transportation, and that's a luxury, bad idea. But I need transportation. And if I buy a $40,000 anything, you know, Camry or something, and, you know, five years later, it's worth $12,000. So I had, you know, $28,000 of depreciation. And that's compared to spending $80,000 but having no depreciation, that's the better deal. Now, there, there's, the, the deals don't work that way, but if you could prove to me that they would buy it back at that price, it would be a smart move to make, no matter what it was, because you need transportation. If you don't need transportation, and you live in New York City, and it costs you $1,200 a month to park the car, bad choice. Take public transportation. That's what all the smart people do who are trying to save money. Yeah, I mean, we just have, I mean, can you say that buying a $910,000 house with cash was a bad move? Well, that's a lot of money. It's a beautiful house. It was a 6,000 square foot house. I mean, just beautiful. My wife said, in fact, this is true. She goes, I, I tried for four months to get her to agree to buy it. And she goes, I'm not going to buy that house. I don't care what the price is. I can't live in that house. It's too nice. So, I mean, and so I think some people have actually seen that house. I mean, it was a stunning home, but, you know, it seemed to, it seemed to work out. I and mean, we didn't, we didn't want to stay there. We really never were comfortable with it. But we looked at it as an investment. It turned out to be a very valuable investment. And Weimar got a fair amount of the, the profit. So we were able to put it back into God's work. But I would have to tell you, in closing, the reason that deal went through is because I was dealing with cash. The banks had tried to, you know, they had all kinds of bank issues. They had a bunch of buyers, and the banks wouldn't just, they just, it was rural property, and they didn't know anything. But I came in with cash and told them, that's the deal. I won't give you any more money. And they said, let's go. We're done. Okay. Thank you for joining. Um, hope you learned some biblical principles about uh, financial planning and hope I haven't been too radical for you. This media was produced by Audioverse for Amen, Adventist Medical Evangelism Network. If you would like to learn more about Amen, please visit www.amensea.org. Or if you would like to listen to more free online sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.